I wish I was a little bit taller. I wish I, wish I was, I was like six foot nine so I could get with Leo, but you don't know her, but yo, she's really fine. Mm-hmm. You know, I see her all the time everywhere I go, even in my dreams. I scheme and ways to make a mind because I know she's living tall. Her boyfriend's tall. He plays ball. How am I going to compete with that? Because when it comes to playing basketball, I'm always last to be picked. In some cases, never picked at all. So I just lean up on the wall or sit up in the bleachers. The rest of the girls, I came to watch the girls ball. Dag, y'all, never understood that. Why the jocks get the fly girls and me, I get the hood rats. I tell them, scat, skittle, skabottle. Got hit with a bottle and put in the hospital for dogging that mess. Yes, I confess it's a shame when you're living in a city that's the size of a box and nobody knows your name. Glad I came to my sense. It's like quick, quick, felt sick to my stomach. Overcoming my thoughts of me and her together. Right? So when I asked her out, she said I wasn't a type. Right off his dome. <laughs> how, how do you know all that? I literally write the lyrics out in English class in 12th grade. That's more words than you've ever prepped for the show. This is Four Gals Gab About Gibby. That's so true. It's probably going on all across the country. Is that right going to be now. a thing every week now where you make no. up a new This is Four Friends Fight About Film, a podcast know. about movies and things more important than movies, if we Never ever find any. Right. Still coming up empty, guys. Yep. This week, we're talking about our favorite characters. That is movie characters, not like characters in the alphabet. To kick us off, say your name, <laughs> and if you had to be roommates with a movie character, who would it be, Jordan? My name. Oh, wow. So <laughs> <laughs> a good start. I'm 90. <laughs> Jordan hasn't talked all day. <laughs> Jordan's great-grandfather is joining us okay. today. Okay. <laughs> My name is Jordan. I would be roommates with the Brad Pitt character from True Romance. Oh, yeah. Uh, which yeah. is my favorite Brad Pitt character mm-hmm. of all time. You know, he just lay there. Dangle, yeah. hang Pretty out, lazy. hang out with whatever. I monsters feel like you get tired visit. of him after a little while, though. Oh, definitely. Yeah, like, like Brad, like a couple like hours. Pick up your yeah. clothes. He probably smells a little bit too. Uh, this is Lance. I would pick Gandalf from Lord of the Rings. Uh, I feel <laughs> like he could good. use magic to quickly clean up the place. I think it'd be interesting to come home and see like what demon he's fighting that day. Yeah, but what if what if there was like a staff infection? <laughs> get it? <laughs> staff. staff? Yeah, I got it. Yeah, he holds it. And holds then like the if he was making out with a girl and I walked in, he'd be like, <laughs> "You shall not." Pause. <laughs> like that. Or Two boy. Weeks boy. Oh, that's, yeah, that's a yeah. good point. My name is Hudson. I'm going to go with Severus Snape. Oh. Another wizard. Another wizard. <laughs> they make for great roommates, I hear. <laughs> I would just want to hear him, like, complaining about stuff. Be like, Hudson, <laughs> you left the toilet seat up. <laughs> 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 you know, stuff like that. It'd be dark in there, though, all the time. <laughs> it's uh, just a dungeon. Ugh. Doesn't sound good. This is Kyle KG Kingo Gibbo Gibson. I think I, I feel like you left a few <laughs> names out there. I'd go with Danny Ocean. Danny Ocean. He seems like a cool hang. Dude's wealthy. Don't know who so that is. So we'd be living in a cool place. Ocean's Eleven. Ocean's yeah. 11? Oh, it's been a long time. Yeah. Which the George Danny version? Oh, okay. He'd just be. I think he'd be fun to hang out with. He gets you in a lot of trouble, though, wouldn't he? He's bad I mean, news. But Gibby. he's good. He hasn't gotten arrested in a while. <laughs> in three movies. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We asked you guys on Facebook and Twitter for your favorite actors and their three best movies i'll do this one all right all right this is chris adams 
the dude, Duder, El Duderino, if you're not into the whole brevity thing. Okay, really, it's Michael Corleone, but I couldn't resist a Lebowski quote. <laughs> He's so excited. Yeah. Good choice, Chris. He's happy. Yeah, you yeah, should have just Chris, stuck with Lebowski. Chris tried multiple times to get me to watch The Godfather in college, and I just would not do it. That was uh, one of your many big mistakes, <laughs> Give me. Also tried. Big Lebowski, right? Or no, uh, you just yeah, didn't I did like see it. Big Lebowski. Susan Stagg Cooper. Ryan Burgundy, Lloyd Dobler from Say Anything, Maddie Ross from True Grit. You want to do that again? No, she's in a hurry. <laughs> she's got to go play with her micro machines. Uh, she named three there, Ron Burgundy, Lloyd Dobler, and Maddie Ross. Those are good ones. Who's Maddie, Maddie Ross, Ross, the little girl from True Grit. Oh, I never yeah, saw I that. I like that one. That's a good one. All right, Gibby, you want to take this next one? Trisha Solon says, Daryl Effect. No. <laughs> <laughs> Daryl Zero in The Zero Effect. And... Well, Gibby, just say Pixar. Gibby, is Pixar your favorite character? Pixar is such a good character. <laughs> that that lamp, man, when it pops <laughs> into that oh, the space no, where the eye like should it. be. The, the lamp is like named it. Luxo Jr. So it's not, what's the lamp oh, name? Luxo Jr. Oh. I see. I was proud to not know that's that. That's so cool. You know that. Gosh, I hope that's right. Now, now I, I have sound to like know a real Pix. Pixonian? Yeah, I didn't even know that. So you apparently are taking the mantle of Pixar, nerd. If you want your favorites read on the show, you can leave your comments at facebook.com slash fightaboutfilm or at fightaboutfilm on Twitter. How and why did you pick your characters? Honestly, I don't really care how and why. (laughs) (laughs) I had almost no rhyme or reason. Yeah, I just thought of my favorite characters and was like, oh, what about them? I just mean my characters don't rhyme. You're really trying to breeze through this part of the show, aren't you? (laughs) This is going to be a really weird episode for me. Like, I kind of... I had some fun with this one. Like if I was teaching a film class on my three favorite characters, these would probably not be them, but these were just three. You don't get to do that at your job? Nope. I'd go to a film class on these three characters. Would you? Your three characters. My three characters? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, thank you. One of them is kind of tongue-in-cheek. Uh, I don't think it should be. One you, of them's kind of... You'd have all the football players taking your class for an easy easy A. Yeah, probably. One of mine gets kind of serious, though, so I'm kind of going to be all over the place on the emotional spectrum tonight. Cool. One of them is spelled wrong in this document. Gibby? This is where Gibby had, talks about all the yep. movies he didn't pick. I had a really <laughs> tough one with this one, guys, because I think there are so many great characters in movies and so many memorable ones. I just tried to pick three that popped in my head, which kept changing over the weekend, and it literally wasn't until about 18 hours ago that I nailed down the final There two. are a lot of characters in movies I've noticed. I've noticed yeah. the same thing too. I mean, every like time I watch one, at, it's, there's every more. Every movie has yeah. at least one. <laughs> like when you look at the casting credits on IMDb, yeah. there's it's at least like, like 30 or 40 They're all movie. characters. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah. So I it's looked at it and I went by alphabetical order and you, you, and you. Well, there's no one in a movie who's not a character, I've noticed. I see we're doing this That's again good this point. week. Yeah. This is cool, guys. Since when did you become the guy who takes the podcast so seriously? I went off AFI's 100 million movies, 100 million actors. Jordan, you want to kick us off here? Among the most iconic and recognizable characters of American cinema stands my number three pick. He is largely responsible for the popularity of action and one-man army movies. (laughs) Chuck Norris. (laughs) Nope. His name is in the Oxford English Dictionary as a Vietnam War veteran represented as macho, self-sufficient, and bent on violent retribution. That's pretty accurate. In the dictionary? In In the Oxford English Dictionary. His name was invoked numerous times during the Reagan administration by the president himself. I'm reminded of a recent very popular movie. And in the spirit of Rambo, let me tell you, we're going to win this time. That's right, Ronnie. Rambo. John J. Rambo. What's the J stand for? James, I Junior? think. John, John Jr. John Jacob. Jingleheimer. Rambo. It's definitely Jingleheimer. John John Rambo. <laughs> John Jonathan Rambo. John Jovi Rambo. <laughs> He's the star of some of the action genre's most oddly titled movies. First Blood, Rambo First Blood Part 2, Rambo 3, and 
Rambo. I remember that really being surprising me the first time I saw Rambo as a kid, and, the, and it came up on the screen, First Blood. I was like, is this the right movie? I always <laughs> thought the first one was called yeah, Rambo. Yeah. No, the last one's called Rambo. <laughs> <laughs> However much sense that makes. Huh? So what makes Rambo one of the great characters? Well, he's a complex character in an overly simple genre. He's a walking contradiction, a man willing to die for a country that he can hardly call home. He's a tragic hero, all guts, no glory. Much more than just a killing machine, he's an intelligent, thoughtful, careful man. A man so burned by nearly all of his experiences, but resilient, resourceful, and smart enough to recognize his situation and make the best life he can for himself. The events of each movie seem to break him more, but he continues to do and fight for what he thinks is right. And when I say fight, I mean really, really fight. In the first film, he indirectly killed one guy. Via fighting. Well... (laughs) Hardly. No, not even via fighting. He threw a rock. Big rock, though. No, it wasn't even that big of a rock. That's true. The next movie, he killed more than 60. Third movie, nearly doubled that. And Rambo, the fourth film. It was actually 139, I think. That's more than doubled. That's so many people. Which is what you said. Right. Uh, And the fourth film, he killed 236 bad guys. Brilliant. That's a kill average of 2.59 guys per minute. Do you see it? Yes, you see it. Do you see everyone? It? No, I mean, are they all on-screen kills? Like, yes. you it's it was not like, like silent, he said a bomb. Silent movie cards they put up. Like it's not Eli like he Rambo. like set a bomb. He's like, oh, I just killed those two hundred people. <laughs> Did you just do Schwarzenegger? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's pretty much going to be all night. It's going to be Schwarzenegger. Rambo was actually played by Sylvester Stallone. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Sylvester Stallone. <laughs> That's, that was kind of Van Damme. Like, drunk, yeah. drunk Rainbow? We'll get there eventually with that impersonation. <laughs> I think it's over. Nothing. There we oh, go, Gibby. This violence speaks to part of what I find so endlessly fascinating about Rambo. As I've said before, I abhor violence in real life, but I relish it in the movies. I'm disgusted and frustrated with war in real life, but I celebrate its cinematic incarnations. Rambo seems to hate war as much as he needs it. He gets no pleasure out of it. It's just what he is. He says in Rambo First Blood Part 2, Survive a war. And so he's this idea that's so foreign to me. I don't know the first thing about that feeling. Rambo gives voice to many of the veterans we see today, whether they be relatives, neighbors, or homeless men on the street. These are faces we see regularly, but voices we rarely hear. It's not as if Rambo is a chatterbox in these movies. He rarely speaks, which gives the words he does say much more meaning. At the end of First Blood, Rambo, desperate and tired, and at the end of his rope, gives us all something to think about. It wasn't my war! You asked me, I didn't ask you. And I did what I had to do to win, but somebody wouldn't let us win. And I come back to the world, and I see all those maggots at the airport protesting me, spitting, calling me baby killer and all kinds of vile crap. Who are they that protest me, huh? Who are they? Unless they've been me and been there and know what the hell they're yelling about. Let's stop and talk about that for a second. That monologue and that scene is one of the great yeah. scenes, probably period in the movie, definitely in an action movie, when he completely breaks down and what has been an action film up to the point suddenly becomes this like character study mm-hmm. of this terrible time in American history where these men were sent abroad, put into this thresher, sent back, mm. and everybody hated them. Yeah. Like it was, it was worse when they got back. Yeah. So it, it opens up this painful event and it does it against the vehicle of an action movie which yeah. how often do you see that? That, that to me first blood you, you could make an argument that it's the most impressive action movie i'm not saying necessarily the best you could make that argument too yeah. but it, it's one of the most impressive action movies because it just goes to a place action movies don't almost by their definition don't go right it's very uh, mental it, it is and, and I, I think 
you know, the, the Rambo series to me follows a lot of the same patterns that the Rocky series followed, mm-hmm. where it opens with a film that's very in depth and, and then, and then it becomes, I, I'm not, and I, I don't mean this to sound like an insult to it, but it becomes kind of like a cartoon version of itself, Oh, absolutely. but it's still great. Like it, yeah, it's, yeah. it becomes fun in a very different way. But I, I think when you look at the series and I know the first one's not your favorite one. Oh, it's, it's very close. Yeah. I just think that the fourth one is, is really fun yeah. for me to watch. But the first one stands out and is unique in, in a way that none yeah, of the others quite different. are. In a way, it's a lot like how Mad Max is different than Road Warrior. And like you said, Rocky's different than Rocky IV. Yep. The final scene that we're talking about, Sly Stallone, that is, he rewrote it. And I think he spent a lot of time with veterans mm-hmm. during the process of this. And um, mm. he, he tells a story about being concerned about him getting the right point across. And he actually had some Vietnam vets like on set with him when he did that scene. Hmm. And after they did a take or the last take or whatever, he went over to them and was like, you know, Oh, was it good? How, how did, yeah, basically. Yes. And, and that they, I knew? they, they were like, it was, it was awesome. I mean, it was but like, that was what, like basically he gave them a voice. Yeah. 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 Which that, is pretty incredible. That's, that's what it feels like. Not just a great scene, but an, an almost important scene. Absolutely. That needed to happen. Absolutely. And then gets ruined by that terrible 80s song at the oh, end credits. It's but, so bad. but up to that, <laughs> so the movie bad. is fantastic. I mean, I'm, I'm assuming what happened with the the later movies was it kind of turned into uh, like franchising and merchandising. Because I remember being a kid and playing with Rambo toys, which oh, is yeah. such a weird thing. And I guess that happened more in the 80s where you'd have cartoons based on R-rated movies and toys. And it just seemed like a very weird thing. But I remember me and my friends. I mean, it's kind of like Son of Rambo, you know, where it's like mm-hmm. you pretended to be Rambo. It's like mm-hmm. me and my friends like reenacting this stuff. I don't know when I actually saw these movies or if or like our dads just liked them or what. Yeah, I think a lot of us probably <clears throat> didn't see the first one until later. <laughs> The first, the first one was the first one that I saw, and I think the only one I'd seen as a kid. So it's, I mean, I had a different. I was shocked when Rainbow Two and Rainbow Three came out, and they were so kind of over the top, and him oh, in yeah. other countries and yeah. stuff. Well, uh, my my real takeaway from this is that if, if we can hear Rambo's words louder than the gunfire and explosions, we can find a way to relate and empathize with the veterans around us to better care for the men and women that Rambo talks about at the end of Rambo: First Blood Part Two. I what? what they want and every other guy who came over here has spilt his guts and gave everything he had once for our country to love us as much as we love it that's what i want who's up next I am Lance number three character. So we've all been there. You're in high school. Everyone is underconfident trying to find where they fit in. And there's that one kid who turns into a werewolf. It's awkward for everyone. You're not sure how to handle it. And it becomes a big thing for a while. You want to be nice to him, but you don't want people to think you're friends with him. And then finally (laughs) he goes too far, kills someone's dog and someone with a silver bullet puts him out of his misery. In 1985, the Rod (laughs) Daniels film Teen Wolf played with this entirely relatable run of the mill situation and made a comedy out of it. The film tells the story of Scott Howard played by Michael J. Fox, a high school student who is on the lower end of the popularity totem pole. He slowly starts noticing strange things happening to his body, an ability to hear sounds at an unhearable frequency, constant itching, and unusually long nails. That's right, Scott's turning into a werewolf and learns that he comes from a long line of them, his father included. Surprisingly, his newfound wolfness catapults him up the popularity ladder, landing him the hottest girl in school, the lead in the play, and the top athlete on the basketball team. As he reaps the benefits, he must learn to control his anger and deal with the downsides his new powers also bring. It's really just about puberty though, right? I guess so. But... (laughs) 
Teen Wolf is not the character I picked. No way. Ooh, it's a twist. What I love about Teen Wolf is that it's not only this absurd premise, but what's even more absurd is how people respond to it. No one seems to be that concerned with what this means for humanity, the science behind it, nothing. If we found out tomorrow that werewolves walked among us, imagine the ways that would turn society on its head. The only real impact here is that everyone loves it and how it benefits them. And no one jumps aboard this bandwagon quicker than my number three character, Scott's best friend, Styles. Styles is the ultimate capitalist. Is he concerned that his friend might be dangerous? That his friend might suffer some negative effects? of this psychologically? Nope. Literally, his only concern is how to monetize and profit from it. And for some reason, this is endlessly hilarious to me and has always made me love this character. Styles first learns about Scott's condition while in a garage looking for some weed he's hidden. Scott is troubled, says he needs to talk to him, but Styles doesn't really care. So Scott turns into a wolf right in front of him. What instinct kicks in for Styles? Concern? Empathy? None of those. Instead, it's entrepreneurship. <laughs> Styles immediately wants to know what skills he has, and Scott demonstrates his powers of scent by finding the weed for him. Styles laughs, gives him the name Teen wolf on the spot thus immediately branding him <laughs> look at you tw you're gonna be glad that you came to me with this yes because with the right angles man we're gonna turn this into something monstrous also he does all this while wearing a shirt that says what are you looking at <laughs> so good <laughs> So Within <laughs> weeks, the school is flooded with Teen Wolf merchandise being peddled by Styles, the ultimate shameless entrepreneur. <laughs> All right, so look, this is obviously kind of a tongue-in-cheek choice, but this character's always cracked That's me up. Yeah, he's no, awesome. it's a great Styles, choice. This, well, this, this is one reason I picked this character, because Styles is a great example of one of those rare characters where if you met them in real life, you'd hate them. But in the confines of a movie, you absolutely love them. This was the type of character that, God rest his soul, Bill Paxton played uh, in Aliens and Weird Science. And Styles was the precursor to another famous character, Stifler, from the American Pie movies. <laughs> it's a hard balance to strike but when it happens it's incredible no styles is great and after you read all that i'm wondering like how did my parents let me watch this movie 30 times when i was seven years old yeah but it's styles Cause, is cause awesome teen wolf's a great babysitter yeah it really was styles is the type of guy that in real life you hate him like the kid in your high school that acts like that you know what i mean but like in movie he makes his great it's movie character were you listening to anything i just said i actually always liked boof the most well, was a sweetheart. Yeah. I always thought she was just a real well, this good. Is, Styles was my favorite by far. Yeah, well, I mean, this you're you're right. This is a movie about puberty, but it's also a movie about like popularity yeah. and how someone handles this idea of their social standing changing. And 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 Boof and <laughs> I just love their names, Boof. <laughs> oh, yeah. And the the other girl who's like the hot popular girl. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of what Scott's that that kind of Pam. symbolizes his. Is it Pam? Pam. Pam. It's so weird that her name's Pam. I guess that was a hot girl name. Yeah. And the, Pamela. I mean, no offense. Fine names. No. Just, I love all Pams. Yeah, as do I. Yeah. But uh, Nothing sticks to them. <laughs> Terrible joke. <Yep. laughs> it wasn't a good one. Here's a question I've always had about Teen Wolf and was made even more so the most recent time I watched it a couple of years ago. And I've asked a few people, but what's the deal with Lewis? Like, why does Lewis, like, hate him? If you haven't seen the film, what Gibby's referring to is Scott has two friends, Styles and Lewis. They're like a trio that hangs out. And for some reason, after he turned on Wolf, Lewis just refuses to speak to him anymore. Like, it doesn't make any sense. Like, there's no explanation. There Lewis had to be, like, an hour It's an allegory for racism. Yeah. So Lewis is the racist? Yeah, Lewis is a racist. <laughs> Maybe. To accept Man, that's just so. But in a weird way, Lewis also kind of sees what other people see going wrong in him early. So in a yeah. way, Lewis is kind of prophetic. Yeah. Lewis. Are we really overthinking this movie? Is that <laughs> no, the problem? No, no, I, I don't, don't think, think so. No. I think any movie with a 25 meta score deserves more talk than we're giving it right now. With a what? What does that mean? 
25 meta score 25 out of what 100 yeah i gotta say oh, that's not much how i remember yeah. this movie being beloved it was not apparently in critical circles as a six on imdb it yeah has a 25 i think it was, metacritic but i, I think, think that, for I, certain people our age it's, it's a, yeah oh, i've always loved yeah. this movie so it's much. like the, it's the ultimate 80s movie i mean van surfing does it get any yeah. more yeah. iconic and yeah. awesome yeah. than did van you try surfing? it after watching the movie? i mean riding no. riding on the back of trucks on your skateboard it's so cool I'm sure not many now dead kids did try it. <laughs> uh, most wow. impressive. Uh, There's probably styles. a subset of parents out there who just hate this movie because yeah. their kids died because they were yeah. band surfing. Sad. <laughs> that's true. Did we just make a joke? <laughs> <laughs> most impressive about this movie AFI's 100 Greatest Heroes and Villains. Not on it. <laughs> really? Man. My number three character is Leon. Leon? Leon. 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 Maybe you should seek some sort of professional pronouncer. I don't don't know any French Pronunciation expert? Nor nor would I. From the film, Leon, or the professional to all you Americans out there. Yeah, you, of course, have only seen the French original. It's an American. Sorry, take me out. (laughs) (laughs) What? Uh, Leon is a professional assassin or cleaner. He lives and works alone. His best friend is a houseplant, which he meticulously nurtures. He watches old movies. He doesn't know how to read. He has a moral code. No women, no kids. He doesn't swear. He doesn't smoke. He only drinks milk. Basically, he's like a big kid that also kills people. Can I change? Sounds my... like me. Yeah. <laughs> no. One can of I, those can things. I, can I change my roommate choice to Leon's houseplant? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You better not let it die, though. Oh, I won't. When his 12-year-old neighbor Matilda's family is found murdered, he saves her life by taking her in, and the two form an unlikely friendship. Where Leon is childlike, Matilda is street smart and wise beyond her years. She smokes. She cusses. She drops out of school she has a rough life matilda asked leon to train her to be a cleaner to avenge the death of her little brother and eventually he agrees how much would it cost to hire someone to get those dirt bags who killed my brother five grand a head wow how about this i work for you in exchange you teach me how to clean hmm? what do you think Clean your place. I'll do the shopping. I'll even wash your clothes. Is it a deal? As the two characters grow closer, Leon teaches Matilda how to be a healthy, responsible adult, and she, in turn, gives him a taste for life and a reason to live. There's something so cool about Hitman movies, and this might be my favorite. So beautifully and well done, and it's the character that grounds such an otherwise violent film with real beauty and heart. Well, it's that thing where a bad man finds his soul. That's just, that's all, that is a universally great yeah. theme in movies. What I love about Leon in this movie... This Hitman movie, with a heart of gold. Yeah. Um, who doesn't know he has a heart of gold he doesn't really seem to have any heart at all he seems like kind of this cardboard dead inside yeah, guy yeah. at first one thing i love about this movie is how they give him no real background or context he just kind of is and you don't you don't right. learn how he became a hitman you don't learn why you don't learn kind of you know the joker in dark knight it's like sometimes it's better to not contextualize everything and a yeah. character could benefit more from how little you know about them as opposed to how much you do know about them hmm. number 27 and imdb's top 250 wow really? seems like really high for it wow. have you seen this movie again i have 
not. Oh. I can always fantastic. tell when he hasn't seen it. He throws random facts out. <laughs> What's its score? Lance says if it's above an eight, it's, it's really above an impressive. Eight. We got 8.6. Whoa. Wow. Yeah. Oh, Jay. Congratulations. Yes. I'm not surprised that you like this movie, Hudson, but I, I'm surprised that you like Hitman movies. I am too. Really? Yeah. You don't he really does. like anything. You hate you like Mr. and Mrs. But Smith. Most These hit- are people that kill for a living. Yeah, but most Hitmen are not. I, I hate serial killer movies. Those are people that kill for the wrong reasons. Hitmen are usually. <laughs> the wrong reasons. <laughs> Hitmen are. No, I don't but think usually almost every Hitman has some sort of code. Hudson's moral code. Yeah. It's like killing a, for money. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Killing just to kill. Not okay. Serial killers sometimes have a code. Sure. And also yeah. it's well, di- usually yeah, it's I don't know. I, 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 for whatever reason, I think Hitman movies are, are awesome. Just really cool. I, I mean, I love that you like something like that. Yeah. You like I'm the sure idea. you could point out one that I hate. You like the idea of like a dark nobility. Yeah. Is that what it is? Yeah, absolutely. A mixture I mean, they of usually things. just make for interesting characters. It's yeah, a person that oh, kind agree. of yeah, yeah. Yeah, rides that line of uh, morality, you know? Hmm. Uh, yeah. You know, killing people. It's not really sure. riding much of a line. It's no. quite <laughs> over that line, <laughs> I'd seems, say. Seems that way. Well beyond it. <laughs> I did read earlier that Natalie Portman was rejected in her audition for this as too young. and But she came back, I guess, auditioned again or like showed up again and auditioned again. And she shot the casting director. He, and yeah. Was like, and he was I like, I can do it. She so showed the new back casting up director was like, I don't want to die. She showed so. back up and the casting was like, well, you're older now. By like two weeks, you're good. <laughs> no, I don't think that was it. <laughs> she put on <laughs> fake, fake armpit yeah, was it like hair? the same day <laughs> she came back later? <laughs> Look, I'm a woman now. A it's going to be, it's okay. gonna be way more interesting if no one now knows the real story and we just go with one of these stories. Yeah, that relates. I know it wasn't about Natalie Portman's character, but that relationship between them is so great and so yeah. unlikely and like unethical in a way, but yeah. beautiful in another way. Like the, the pool between those two things. Yeah. Is, yeah. I mean like throughout the film, she constantly tells him that, well, she thinks she's in love with him and, all yeah. that, and he kind of like just throws it off or whatever, but it does watching it. There are some uncomfortable moments like that, that it kind of touches on. I mean, I've heard in the script, it even goes oh, yeah. farther yeah, the, in that the script, direction. The script goes really inappropriate. <laughs> yeah. But he's such a innocent guy. Like he's mm-hmm. asexual. Mm-hmm. So you never think of them in that way. His passion is Gene Kelly movies. That's what makes yeah. him happy. Which yeah. oddly is my passion. So <laughs> weird. What does that mean about you? I don't know. Plants, do you, you kill people? Mm, money. All righty. Gibby, your number three. My number three pick is Edwina Ed McDonough from Raising Arizona. It's played by Holly Hunter in just her third feature film. So Raising Arizona is a 1987 second feature film from Coen Brothers. And in my opinion, their funniest film. And if not their best in their top three. Give me back that baby. That's pretty good. <laughs> yes, it was. Anyway, I actually had anyway written there. Raising Arizona. <laughs> anyway. You put every single like thing, interruption like, in your sentence. Yeah, but like, comment, Lance is going to say something annoying here. Yep. Then anyway. Wow. Gibby tries to downplay how much he preps. He actually, that's all he does. <laughs> he plans he, every he word. He scripts every the single. entire thing. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> Raising Arizona is about H.I. McDonough. Uh, not very good convenience store thief who meets Ed, who's the officer who books him into jail on his first offense. Against her better judgment, Ed falls in love with H.I. and accepts his marriage proposal when he's booked for the fourth time into jail. They get married and realize that Ed is barren. And so when they see that unpainted furniture magnet, Nathan Arizona recently had five baby boys, they figure it's more than he can handle, so they decide just to steal one. I was, keep in mind, I, sorry, this, I just got really confused, because yeah. I thought you said unpainted furniture magnet, <laughs> and really I really tracked some furniture. I really didn't magnate. understand. I could have said just store owner. <laughs> so many routes you could have gone there. He's rich. He's a rich guy named Nathan Arizona. Huh. 
Anyway, all this stuff happens in the first 11 minutes of the movie. He's the styles of uh, Unpainted Furniture. Yeah, he's really funny. <laughs> to me, Raising Arizona is a fantastic film. It has a lot of great characters, but Ed's just my favorite. And she's a great character, and she's just so memorable. And she packs a lot of emotion and fire and empathy and protection into this one little tiny package. There, there's a scene pretty early in the film where she finds out she's unable to have the child, which is kind of funny, but it's also really heartbreaking. So she just cries like uncontrollably? Ha, <laughs> I'm barren. <laughs> and then there's a super amazing scene after they steal the baby that's just amazing. I think that's what makes me love this character so much. She's not afraid to show her emotions at all. And I think it makes her a pretty healthy person. Definitely the healthiest in the film. It's kind of opposite of me, for sure. I don't like showing emotion, except laughter. And crying in every movie theater. Crying yeah, in to show a great deal of it. And at urinals. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, just maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I don't know myself. <laughs> There's a... Uh, huh. Yeah. Three friends give therapy to a fourth friend. <laughs> Poorly. Instead of talk about film. Yeah. It's an interesting pick, Gibby. This is a great movie. I'm curious why you picked her over so many other characters. I'm not saying you shouldn't have. I'm just curious. like, Because like when I think about this movie, she's actually not really the first character I think of. I think of High. I think of the John Goodman character. The biker guy. I mean, yeah. There's a lot of characters I think of. What was it about her that stood out to you more than anyone else? I think when I think of Raising Arizona, for whatever reason, Holly Hunter's character, Ed, just yeah. pops into my head. And I mean, specifically these two or three scenes I've talked about where she's just so emotional and just fiery. I don't know. I just really like her. Gibby's deep. Yeah. And I'm deep. I, I just deep well adore Holly Hunter. Yeah, I know. I think she's so much fun to watch. She just gives it everything and it's, yeah. it's so often over the top, but she's somehow able to make it work right. in a way that I feel like most people aren't able to do. And this, I mean, this role's totally over the top. Holly Hunter strikes me as this person who, like, her life took this unintended awesome turn. Like, she was supposed to be this southern mom yelling at her kids in the mall. And instead, she somehow became this, <laughs> like, huge actress. actress. Yeah, like, nobody quite knows how it happened, but thank goodness it well, did. Well, it was that first role she took when she was in fifth grade where she played Helen Keller in a play. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Oh, Good research, go. Jordan. Good job, Jordan. Uh, I did not actually do that research for this episode. <laughs> I actually just it. know that yeah. because I love Holly Hunter. Huh. I feel like I should have rewatched some of these movies before tonight's podcast. <laughs> Inter- I, I'm now concept. realizing. Mid-episode I rewatched, <laughs> I rewatched Raising Arizona last night, and it is hilarious. I mean, it's there's so much things in there that I don't remember from. I probably hadn't seen it in seven, eight years. The, Nick Cage is fantastic in it, and I could have easily picked H.I. He just gives so many quirks. It's a very quirky character, uh, but he's. I mean, he goes through a lot of stuff in the yeah, movie, too. Scary. A guy who doesn't want to grow up, and this responsibility of being a dad all of a sudden just totally freaks him out. It hints at so much of later Cohen's. Oh, yeah. The the dialogue's perfect in it. The way oh, that yeah. they write it is there's there's a running joke of, okay, then. It's just funny. Okay, then. Okay, then. Okay, then. Yeah, um, pretty funny, I guess. Could we do an all-Nick Cage episode? 12, <laughs> 12 Nick Cage movies? Could. Yeah, he's done about 89 movies. Yeah, I feel like there's a good like 12 of them that are completely different from each other. Yeah, I'd say. Oh, my I'd college say. roommate and I, who we've already mentioned in this episode, we used to cloak this movie to each other at night while laying in bed. <laughs> Cuddling. Just stroking each other's hair. You might want to give us some spatial context here. I was on top. Or not. I was not helping. Oh, the bunk. We had bunk beds on top there of each go. other. I was on I was on the top bunk. He was on the bottom. And okay, then. There we go. When there was no crawl, Dad, we ate sand. You ate sand? We ate sand. You know what my favorite scene is, Chris? <laughs> the scene with the biker. 
Jordan, number two. Question for you guys. How do you make a movie about the pain and struggle of divorce and custody battles and starting over as much fun as possible without losing any of the potency of the subject matter? Puppets. No. Cast Jackie Chan. Huh. Kill uh, a man? I'm nope. so, I, I was going to say, all over I was going to say, give it a British accent and dress it up in old lady clothes. There you go. Uh, enter Chris Columbus's 1993 dramedy masterwork, Mrs. Doubtfire. The only time it's been called dramedy masterwork. <laughs> <laughs> it's good to be unique. Robin Williams gives one of his greatest performances as Daniel Hillard, a talented but somewhat lowly voice actor married with three children. His life revolves around his kids, so when he loses his job and enters the beginning of a bitter divorce and is told he only has Saturday visitation rights by the judge, he's willing to go to great lengths to still be close to his kids. So when his now ex-wife, played superbly by Sally Field, is looking to hire a nanny, Hillard puts his talents to use and creates Mrs. Doubtfire, an aged British nanny who cooks and cleans and disciplines and gives structure to the children the exact opposite of daniel hillard this sounds like the dumbest plot device ever but this is a really good movie and the fact this works is still perplexing it's it's crazy the lion's share of the comedy comes out of hillard adjusting to his new body and lifestyle and also from our knowledge that mrs doubtfire is actually hillard when the rest of the characters are clueless mrs doubtfire is hilarious period like in this like (laughs) a plan of a flag in the sand there jordan yes i will controversial yep i'm gonna plant a flag and draw a line what are the other podcast gonna say the movie or the character both Mm. like in this scene after sally field has grown to trust mrs doubtfire she asks for advice concerning her new love interest mrs doubtfire may i ask you a question oh sir how long after mr doubtfire passed away winston did you feel any desire never 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 again Never again. Once the father of your children is out of the picture, the only solution is total and lifelong celibacy. Celibacy? Yes. And if you violate that, heaven forgive you. Good luck. But the hardship is much more than just a backdrop for Robin Williams to bounce jokes off of. There's real power and drama in this movie. Perhaps more pronounced now, after Robin Williams' suicide, there was often a layer of sadness just under the rapid-fire goofy jokes that made Williams famous. And there's no shortage of that here. But that sadness gave weight to his characters. This is wonderfully apparent in this movie. He shows us a character giving all his effort to making the very best of the situation. While he hopes that he can repair his failed marriage, he most of all realizes that he can't live without his children. So he defies the law. We know he's not a danger to his children, so we can root for him and applaud him for being a warrior parent. I loved this movie as a kid. It was one of the funniest things I'd ever seen. But as an adult, as a husband and a father, I still laugh at Mrs. Doubtfire, but apparently, as I learned last week, it makes me cry as well. Part of what is so remarkable about the movie is that there are no bad guys. Everyone is doing what they think is right and what they believe they really need to do for themselves and for the children. Even Sally Field's handsome and wealthy new boyfriend, played to perfection by Pierce Brosnan, has good intentions. All of these good intentions heighten the conflict rather than deflate it, making Hillard fight all the harder for his rights as a father. Here, he is making a closing argument to the judge. Your Honor, in the past two months, I've secured a residence, I've refurbished that residence, and made it an environment fit for children. Those are your words. I'm also holding down a job as a shipping clerk. So I I believe I met your requirements. I had a schedule. In regards to my behavior, I can only plead insanity because ever since my children were born, the moment I looked at them, I was crazy about them. Once I held them, I was hooked. 
I'm addicted to my children, sir. I love them with all my heart. And the idea of someone telling me I can't be with them, I can't see them every day, well, it's like someone saying I, I can't have air. I can't live without air and I, I can't live without them. Listen, I would do anything. I just wanted to be with them. You know, I need that, sir. We have a history. And they just, they mean everything to me and they need me as much as I need them. So please, don't take my kids away from me. Take a peek under the hilarious wig, and this movie no doubt fires me up to be the best parent, husband, and man that I can be. That's a big takeaway for a silly cross-dressing family movie. But there it is. Toodaloo! <laughs> the element of this movie I want to talk about that I don't usually talk about with movies, which is the the makeup. Yeah, you often see movies where people are disguised as other people, and and it a lot of times it just doesn't work. No, no yeah, honestly, and I, like I love Tootsie, but even in that one, I'm sitting there the whole time thinking, yeah, that's a dude dressed as a woman. <laughs> this movie, though, I start to forget it's Robin Williams <laughs> yeah, in there. Really? Yeah. And it's re- I do. It's really impressive. Part of it, I guess, because he's older. And, uh, yeah, something about it just, it works. And and like, if I were making this movie, my first concern would be, Gee, is this going to work? Or is it just going to, you're just going to be thinking, Robin, why is Robin, Robin Williams wearing a dress? And you do, it works. You immerse yeah. yourself in it and you forget it. And so it's understandable why everybody around him doesn't see it because I stopped seeing it after a little yeah. while. Yeah, I mean, that's, you kind of already covered it, but w- what makes this work so well is that for a movie about a, a cross-dressing nanny, it's 100% reality. Yeah. I mean, I mean, like everything's played as if it's real. All the emotions, all the drama moments, even the comedy doesn't get so wacky that you're like, oh, that would never happen. You know, everything kind of plays straight. Yeah, it's it's so it's so. I mean, he sticks his face in a cake and 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 the icing's <laughs> dropping like dripping yeah, off, yeah, and that yeah, seems amazing. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and it's ri- absolutely ridiculous. And it it I feel like it should overpower the movie, but it but I don't think it does. Yeah, there's a lot of things that they they try to tackle in this movie, and I and I think they do a great job of it. And the other thing is I love that it ends in a realistic way uh, that it doesn't end in the happy ending that you yeah, think it's right. going to be. Everyone yeah. got back together. Right, yeah, yeah. yeah that, it would be awful. Would be stupid. Spoiler yeah. alert for a 24 year old movie, guys. <laughs> <laughs> All right, next movie. Okay, then. Character. Is that it? That's it? Lance, number two. Years ago, I came up with a theory that if I knew nothing about a person other than their favorite Disney character, I could describe them to a T. I would use this as a party trick, as an icebreaker, whatever. And about 99% of the time, it worked incredibly what? well. Why have we never tried this? Let's try it right now. Well, I know all of you really well, so it's not really going to oh. work. We you can talk about me. it a little bit. You don't know me. You don't know me. Okay. How I live your favorite my life. Character? I got this idea when I worked for... <laughs> Because we're not going to do it. <laughs> well, we're not going to stop the whole show and play this oh, game. Oh, we will. Okay. No, we won't. All right, go ahead. I got this idea when I worked for Disney many years ago, where everyone has a favorite Disney character. And as I got to know my coworkers' personalities, invariably their favorite character either mirrored who they were, or in many cases, who they wished they were. Mm. Your favorite Disney character often finds you, and the one that found me was the Cheshire Cat from Alice in Wonderland, the 1951 Disney classic about a young girl's adventures through an upside-down fantasy land. One of my email addresses has the name Cheshire Cat in it. If you've been in my house, you've seen more Cheshire cat paraphernalia than is probably normal for a 38 year old man. <laughs> mm-hmm. Often Definitely. when one of my friends goes to Disney World would be too much. <laughs> Shut up. Often when one of my friends goes to Disney World they find me some new Cheshire cat thing and my collection keeps growing. The crown jewel of which is an animated cell framed on my wall. Why the Cheshire cat? He's a minor character with maybe five minutes of screen time. He's hardly a staple Disney character, and there are no rides named after him or Cheshire Cat movies. But there's so many things about him that draw me to him. Wait, can we try to guess your personality based on your favorite Disney character? That you already know Cheshire my personality. Cat? I know, but like I, we can just do the thing. We'll do the party trick. Okay. Yeah. Sure, go for it. Anal um, douchebag. 
pretentious, <laughs> prickish. A douchebag uh, with an anus? <laughs> you like to disappear. Mm, very good. From society. You yes. have a tail. I've got a nice... I've got a nice butt. You, you like yeah. laughing. You smile a lot. That's you, you, yeah. And you smoke a lot of opium. It's <laughs> not true. He doesn't smoke opium in this. Just his creator while yeah. writing him. That's very good. You're, 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 there, yeah. you're there right. for your friends if you need Look it. Look at that. You're nailing it, Gib. Oh, you're pink and purple. Hudson's <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, first, we have a physical resemblance. I've got a big mouth and a big smile. And if there's one thing I'm known for, it's smiling a lot. <laughs> oh, yeah. Shut up. <laughs> Won't stop smiling. The Cheshire Cat is the freest character in the film. He comes and goes as he pleases. He follows no rules. And those are things that don't necessarily describe me accurately, but they're things I long for. <laughs> he jokes around and is never serious, seeing everything as something to laugh about. He knows how to relax and enjoy himself. Again, something I wish I could do more often. He stands on the periphery of things, often observing rather than interjecting himself. And when he d- does decide to interfere in events, he's very selective about it. He'd rather stand above things, watch and listen, than constantly give everyone his opinions. Stand and th- on his head above things. That also. Literally take his head off and stand on it, a skill I wish I had. Can you stand on your head? In that regard, he's very thoughtful. Ultimately, he does have a strong sense of morality. He just uses it on his own terms as he sees fit. Despite his lack of screen time, he's a hero to Alice, always popping up when she needs him most, which is a very romantic idea to me. And at the end, he helps save her from the Queen's wrath. A seeming non-factor, he ends up changing everything, and there's something about that that I love. He's a rascal, but he's a fearless and loyal one. (laughs) A A player in the background who you could argue has more influence over the direction of the story than even Alice herself. And that, that ability to both stay in the background and yet still remain relevant is a balancing act I love. Balancing act, staying on your head. There you go. I always found him kind of annoying, honestly. Hey, Ooh. there you go. Yeah. It fits. <laughs> Nailed it. it fits. Nailed it. I was re-watching this, and it kept driving me crazy that the Cheshire Cat's voice sounded so familiar. Uh-huh. And it turns out it's this man, Sterling Holloway, Holloway. who has a ton of credits for doing all kinds of stuff, but he did a lot of voices in Disney movies. Mm-hmm. My oldest daughter was obsessed with Winnie the Pooh when she was a kid, when she was super small. Probably his most famous and, voice. Uh, yeah. And yeah, I mean, so now I hear Cheshire Cat and all I hear is Winnie. incessant I love Winnie. Winnie the Pooh. But I agree, a very cool character. I remember as a kid watching Alice in Wonderland and being terrified of the Cheshire Cat. You know, Alice in Wonderland is a, it's a, it's a beloved Disney film. It wasn't one that all critics loved. And I, I remember reading one critic who wrote that part of the problem with Alice in Wonderland is that so much of the, so many of the characters were trying so hard to be crazy that it didn't work. But, but he, I remember him saying the one character that does seem to work and fit and be lovable and yet weird and offbeat at the mm-hmm. same time as the Cheshire Cat. Hmm. I would agree with that. Actually, come to think of it, most characters in Alice in Wonderland are pretty annoying. I guess that's kind of the point. <laughs> or, you know, go f*** yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Cheshire Cat say that? Can you do the voice of the Cheshire Cat saying that? Go f*** yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Now yeah, if you could just disappear. That's <laughs> like it. That's in face is like red. You can pass out. Well, what he was imagining was Winnie the, he was imagining Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> is this your is this your favorite Disney movie? No. Probably not my favorite Disney movie. It's it's up there though. If I made like a top 5, it would be in the top 5. Yeah. When you ask that question at parties, what character do you get the most? Well, what's interesting is you you can often tell a lot by the character that someone doesn't pick. So it's always interesting talking to so, when you, to a woman who doesn't pick a princess. That, that's always very intriguing to me. And that usually means she's not a super high maintenance girly type. She's very independent. Um, mm. You know, super intelligent women tend to pick Belle. 
a lot of guys who are who joke around a lot tend to pick sidekicks. Like like guys will pick Sebastian from The Little Mermaid or <laughs> yeah, I don't know, it's weird. Yeah. Interesting. I'm pretty um, excited. Yeah, I'm to, fascinated to, by that. Try this. this. I tried it. At, I remember trying it at a party one night and people like flipped out over it. They thought it was so much fun. <laughs> like they would just start asking That's each cool. other. I remember one girl accused me of like doing research on her or something. She's like, "You asked my friends about the uh, so <laughs> I didn't. I promise." All right, I could tell you who my next favorite character is, but oh, ins- that would be helpful. I'm going to sing it, <laughs> but instead I'm going to have an elderly Winona Ryder do that for me. <laughs> okay. You know the mansion on top of the mountain? It's haunted. Well, a long time ago, an inventor lived in that mansion. He made many things, I suppose. also created a man. He gave him insides, a heart, a brain, everything. Well, almost everything. You see, the inventor was very old. He died before he got to finish the man he invented. So the man was left by himself, incomplete. Scissors, hands, hands, scissors, Scissors. (laughs) Edward Scissorhands. I'm really excited to talk about this movie as it's one of my favorite movies of all time. I'm surprised that we've gone this far without talking about it. Yeah. We've covered a lot of Tim Burton. Yeah, we have. It just uh, This is always a movie I, I associate with you, yeah. so I'm excited yeah. to hear you discuss this. So after the death of his creator, Edward lives life out by himself in the mansion on top of the mountain. But when Peg, a woman selling Avon door-to-door, stops by the mansion, she finds Edward and brings him home. The story follows Edward as, as he attempts to try and fit into society. First, the suburban knights accept him, kind of at arm's length, as some kind of celebrity oddity, but eventually they all turn on him. Edward wants what we all want, love, and he seemingly finds it in Peg's daughter, Kim. He's so innocent, so pure, so loving, but he seems he can't get close to anyone without hurting them. Uh, In one of the most heartbreaking moments of the film, Kim asks him to hold her, and he replies, I can't. Hands down, my favorite film score of all time. Scissor hands down. <laughs> uh, I could watch the scene where he's carving an angel out of ice and Kim is dancing in the snow over great, and over and over again. Scene. Mm-hmm. And you're right, the music to this movie is gorgeous. myself relating to uh, Edward so much as a teenager, wanting to fit in somewhere, but constantly feeling like an outcast. I never had scissors for hands, obviously, but I was painfully... Not sh- obvious to our didn't listeners. Didn't know that. Oh. <laughs> you snip, guys are wondering? Snip, snip. I made masturbation really... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, at least you're circumcised now. <laughs> <laughs> I never had scissors for hands, but I was painfully shy and unable to connect. That's what's so beautiful about the character of Edward is that everyone has 
has that thing that they feel like separates them um, and so everyone can relate. I love that you picked this. This is such a great character, not one that came to mind for me when I was thinking of these, but it's it's a character that could only have been born in the imagination of Tim Burton. I mean, it's it fits him perfectly and I think it's so much about him too and mm-hmm. I don't know if he's ever called it something that's kind of autobiographical, but, but I, I look at this as a movie about Tim Burton's life to a certain extent who was this shy, quirky guy who grown up probably people thought there was something wrong with him. Yeah. And that thing that was quote unquote wrong with him was also the thing that made him this creative genius right. and this and this you know this, defined the rest of his yeah life. exactly and turned him into what what made him so gifted in the same way that the scissors are edward's flaw but they're also what makes him creative you know, stand and out and, and wonderful and yeah and he did he designed this character when he was still in high school did he yeah huh. i hadn't seen this movie in 20 years probably but i loved it and just thinking back on it i just have a sense of sadness about it just i remember the movie being sad and coming out sad after the movie yeah it's one of the clear under the age of 10 memories I have of watching a movie. I watched it with my mom one afternoon and, and cried. Mm-hmm. And, and it's it was just so beautiful. And mm-hmm. obviously like nothing I'd seen before as a, you know, eight or nine year old. And I, I wish I could have I wish I could have that experience again. Mm. I feel it's like it's our the closest thing we have to like a new universal monster, hmm. you know, like yeah. a Frankenstein or a Dracula, uh, a mummy is, you know, mm-hmm. Edward Scissorhands for us, something that we grew up with. It kind of fills that void. I mean, it, that's essentially what happen. it is. I'm is glad the Frankenstein that story happen, that he actually well, became. You're right. No, it, it is, it is absolutely the Frankenstein story, and there are, there are points in this movie where he is terrifying. Yeah, I mean, when he and, and he's pushed to it, it's not anything right. he ever does. Innately, he is a very gentle creature. When he he loses it. It's yeah. it is really scary, and in the wrong hands, this could have turned into like a wrong, violent. He's <laughs> gonna do that every time. <laughs> this could have turned into a very violent, very terrifying movie. Right, but you can tell that that Tim Burton has kind of a sweetness and a sentimentality mm-hmm. underneath all of that, which what is what uh, makes this work for me. I don't know that there is a movie that is more Burton than this one. Not yeah. just in terms of the style of it, but it just in terms of it being him Personal just on story. every frame. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you know that, that you mean, we all know Johnny Depp is a method type actor? That a he method? actually. <laughs> I, that's what you were saying. We all know he's a meth addict. He may be. Johnny Depp is a method actor, and uh, to prepare for this role, he actually cut off his hands and then grew scissors <laughs> for hands. Grew and, them? Yeah. <laughs> Huh. Is that what happens if any of us lose a hand? Yep. yep. The scissors come up. You, and you then almost after... found that out a couple weeks ago. <laughs> yeah, I almost did. You're right. right. But that's after not what happened in Star up. Wars. What? It's a, it's a fiction. Star Wars is a fiction. Yeah, this is real. This is a real deal, man. Yeah. Gotcha. All right, Gibby, number two. My number two pick is U.S. Deputy Marshal Sam Gerard from 1993's <laughs> The Fugitive. Why did you laugh? I didn't even start it yet. <laughs> everybody in the audience is like, who? <laughs> <laughs> Myself included. (laughs) Uh, Academy Award Best Picture nominee, The Fugitive, 1993. I I think what's funny is when I think of this character, his his name in my head is Tommy Lee Jones. (laughs) If you told me his name in the movie is Tommy (laughs) Lee Jones, I'd be like, yeah, okay, that's his name. Totally. So it's from The Fugitive, uh, sensibly a movie about Dr. Dr. Richard Kimball, played by Harrison Ford, wrongly accused and convicted of brutally, brutally murdered. <laughs> Beardily. <laughs> he did have a really good Using beard. Using his beard. He had a good beard. He did have a good beard. It was full. Uh, yeah, he beardily murdered his wife. He was convicted of that. After crazy bus being hit by a train accident, Kimball escapes and begins the hunt to find out who actually killed his wife. During this time, U.S. Marshals are also on a furious manhunt for Kimball, led by Sam Gerard, played by none other than Tommy Lee Jones. I didn't kill my wife. Is that good? Batman killed his wife. <laughs> yeah. That was pretty. No, that was good. Like yeah. 
Your fugitive name is Dr. Richard Campbell. Yeah. Go get it. That was a really great deal. No, that was not a good yeah. deal. Best one I've ever heard. So, and he's a really long career of acting. I think that Sam Gerard is easily Tommy Lee Jones' best role. He's determined, compassionate, hilarious, smart, and just a dude full of integrity and wanting to be the best at his job possible. He really loves his job. Initially, the movie seems like it's all about Dr. Kimball, but once Gerard shows up, the movie actually kind of splits into two, and it's equally about Kimball and his search search for the killer, and then Gerard and his search for Kimball. And just as much time is spent with Gerard and his team as there is with Harrison Ford as Dr. Kimball. First of all, I watched this movie probably about 30 times while I was a teenager. For whatever reason, I loved it. I listened to the soundtrack while I read novels in high school and while playing seasons of Tecmo NBA basketball. I was a really cool guy. (laughs) (laughs) And as I watched this over again the weekend, I I really loved it again. And Sam Gerard's what makes this movie what it is. I think you're absolutely right, though. I think this is a movie that could have gone wrong in so many places. And and I think you're absolutely right, Gib. I think what made it work was that it wasn't just about Kimball and these one-dimensional cops chasing him. The cops become as interesting, if not more interesting, in many ways than Harrison Ford's character. Oh, yeah, they're definitely more interesting. I mean, once they're introduced, they get as much screen time as Harrison Ford does the mm-hmm. rest of the movie. One thing that I forgot about this movie and Gerard's what makes it like this is that it's actually really funny. You don't really remember it being funny, but when I watched it again this weekend, I mean, I laughed out loud nine to ten times and I mean it's all because of Gerard and <laughs> well, like, nine, did you say nine or ten times nine you laughs, like tally nine, how many ten. you tally how many nine, times no, you I'm laughs out loud that's a lot but are you it's like lot are you time. like counting it as you're going yeah on his fingers nine or ten yeah he ran out I keep, a, more. I keep a chalkboard next to my bed and I go check check laugh out loud <laughs> and then there's like half marks for giggles <laughs> You have an impressive ability to quantify things really quickly. Yeah. I feel like Tommy Jones is... <laughs> Tommy Jones. Wow, you, guys about, a, you guys are on a first Lee. on a two-name basis. Yeah. <laughs> we call each other Lee. <laughs> <laughs> he also calls me Lee. I'm not sure why. Tom Jones. <laughs> I, my name. <laughs> I feel like he's a lead actor in a character actor's body. Like he doesn't seem to notice that he's a character <laughs> yeah. actor because he just he comes in with kind of like such swagger and he's so yeah. natural on screen. That's oh, a great I mean, description. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of introductions, I mean, I think that his introduction to this movie is one of the greatest introductions of any characters. I'm Sam Gerard. Yeah. <laughs> Listen up, ladies and gentlemen. Our fugitive has been on the run for 90 minutes. Average foot speed over uneven ground, barring injuries, four miles an hour. That gives us a radius of six miles. What I want out of each and every one of you is a hard target search of every gas station, residence, warehouse, farmhouse, hen house, outhouse, or doghouse in that area. Checkpoints go up in 15 miles. Your fugitive's name is Dr. Richard Kimball. This is one of my favorite movies of all time. Really? Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. I've seen this movie so many times. I watch it. I probably watch it every two years. Wow. I, I just, I just love it. And it was, it was. I'm pretty sure it was my first big introduction to TLJ. I think it. Oh, it's my, me too. I, I don't think I ever singled him out as like my favorite in in the in the movie, but he plays such an important role. And this is actually probably one of my favorite teams coming together to solve a problem too. Yeah, the whole team is ever. great. I think one thing you like about this movie, too, is one of the guys on the cop team look, kind of looks like Kenny G. Yeah, he does. <laughs> That's that? Newman. Mm. Yeah, but no sacks. Yeah. Uh, 
He's not getting any sex. No sex for Newman. <laughs> this is screen. the rare movie that a side character got his own film after this with yeah. uh, Us Marshals, which yeah. I guess is a loose sequel. Call it Us Marshals. And that's a that's a question I have for Gibby, which is this character is great, but it doesn't seem like he was really able to carry U.S. Marshals. Right. The, the Apparently, there are of fans of U.S. Marshals. Oh, it's it's a fine movie. It's yeah, not it that it's trash. It's just the what was it? Wesley Snipes. Yeah, Wesley Snipes Man. and Robert Downey Jr. Lightning did not strike twice, but he. He did win the Oscar for Best Supporting Actor for The Fugitive. He did. Uh, you go, TLJ. You know, one of the one of the more famous exchanges in the movies is when Kimball yells, I didn't kill my wife! I don't care! You know, at first when you watch care. it, you're like, that's pretty heartless. But then you think about it, I mean, it's really a perfect response because his job is to find Kimball. It's not to, Just to find out right. what happened yep. to him. Yep. I don't particularly care. <laughs> great line. It's a great scene. All right, Jordan, number one. Stephen King has written hundreds of characters into existence. Did you guys know that? Probably thousands. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, at least hundreds. I didn't want to. I didn't want to give him too much credit. For many people, it's his characters that keep them turning page after page and opening new book after book. I am one of those people, and one of my all-time favorite Stephen King characters is my number one pick, Annie Wilkes Booth. No, that's different. <laughs> <laughs> But that's good, Hudson. I like that. She's the product of a triforce of talent. Stephen King, who created her. Rob Reiner, who directed the movie about her. Misery. And probably my favorite actress of all time, Kathy Bates, who played her. Bates won an Oscar for her portrayal and a Golden Globe and three other awards for the performance. Paul Sheldon, played by James Caan, is the author of a hugely popular series of romance books about a woman named Misery. After finishing his latest book, a new novel outside of the Misery series, he heads down the mountain to deliver it to his publisher, gets caught in a blizzard, and runs off the road. When he wakes up, he's greeted by this. I'm your number one fan. There is nothing to worry about. You're going to be just fine. I'll take good care of you. I'm your number one fan. He's now in the care of a woman who loves Paul Sheldon, the writer, and wants to nurse him back to health so that he can write another installment of the Misery series. This gets a teensy-weensy bit complicated by the fact that Annie is actually a delusional, psychotic, sadomasochistic, homicidal stalker with bipolar and personality disorders and a heaping stack of false moral standards. For example, she's got a bit of a problem with the profanity in Paul's new book. The swearing, Paul. There, I said it. Yeah, the profanity bothers you. It has no nobility. These are slum kids. I was a slum kid. Everybody talks like that. They do not? What do you think I say when I go to the feed store in town? Oh, now, Wally, give me a bag of that effing pig feed and 10 pounds that bitchly cow corn. And in the bank, do I tell Mrs. Bollinger, oh, here's one big bastard of a check. Give me some of your Christing money. There! Look there! See what you made me do! Part of the brilliance of Annie's character is that she's funny until she's not. And once she isn't funny anymore, she really isn't funny anymore. (laughs) In similar fashion, Annie has a sweet, caring, generous, loving side. But it's a thin shell that easily cracks. After nursing Paul back to the point where he is able to sit in a wheelchair and type, Annie buys him the most expensive typing paper she can find. Knowing that he must always be on his best behavior, tries to gently tell Annie that this paper won't work because it smudges. We watch in horror as that thin shell falls away. Oh, it does smudge after all. Isn't that fascinating? I thought you'd be interested. I'd, I'd like for you to be in on everything, Annie, not just the finished book, but how it's written. 
Thank you for thinking of me. Anything else I can get while I'm in town? Any other crucial requirements that need satisfying? Would you like a tiny tape recorder? Or how about a handmade set of writing slippers? Well, just uh, the paper will be fine. Are you sure? Because if you want, I'll bring back the whole store for you. Annie, uh, what, what's the matter? What's the matter? I'll tell you what's the matter. I go out of my way for you. I do everything to try and make you happy. I feed you, I clean you, I dress you. And what thanks do I get? Oh, you bought the wrong paper, Annie. I can't write on this paper, Annie. Well, I'll get your stupid paper, but you just better start showing me a little more appreciation around here, Mr. Man. As terrifying and unsettling and downright brutal as she is, she's somehow always a joy to watch. Well, until she isn't. But when that shell of joy cracks, it gives way to one of the greatest and most exciting and satisfying tete-a-tetes in all of cock cinema history. <laughs> <laughs> what makes this character work is the the gradual reveal mm-hmm. that makes her so unique from most monster monsters in, in film history. It, he, so, I mean, he doesn't wake up in, you know, Buffalo Bill's hole in the ground surrounded by skin suits. He right. wakes up well taken care of, fed, comfortable, and she's his friend. You like mm-hmm. her at first. When you first meet her, you're like, oh, what a sweetheart. She's like taking care of him. That's great. Yeah. And that's what makes her terrifying, that metamorphosis where the cracks slowly start to show themselves and the fangs start to come out. It, it makes this movie so fun and so scary. And it, it's a trope that's really not utilized enough in film yeah and and i don't know that it was ever done better than it was in misery i would say not so much of it is also visual so she'll be talking sweetly but almost it seems like without thinking about it she's spraying lighter fluid on his bed mm-hmm. that he's in yeah yeah and and she's just talking sweetly about whatever and, and it and it seems like it's just you know she's just not thinking about it right she's just doing her thing which which i think is is the case and another time when but she, you don't know you don't know is she really about to burn him to death like you're not right, sure right and in reality i think you're right i think it's that she's getting so lost in her own world that she forgets how she's being perceived and how she's acting other people yeah. and then she'll snap out of it she'll be like oh my gosh I'm so sorry she realizes it right, right. she's not completely lacking awareness which makes her even scarier yeah way scarier I read this book and loved it and so I was hesitant to watch this movie when I did which was I don't know 10 or 12 years ago but I think this movie is is a beast on its own mm-hmm. uh, and and absolutely complements the the book. Yeah, the the book is great. One of my favorite scenes in this movie is when Paul gets out of his room when she goes into town mm-hmm. and he finds the book filled with paper clippings. And it's not a unique device. I mean, you've right. seen that in movies before, but the way that without a word being spoken, mm-hmm. we and, and this is how you do it in in movies. You mm-hmm. show things rather than talk about them. Right. It's so much more effective. But the way that we see the picture because we've wondered so much about to this woman up to this point and when we see the picture come into focus article after article it slowly starts to like the fuzziness goes away and you realize what this woman is yeah. it's chilling I hadn't seen this in forever so I don't remember much of it but it's just such a brilliant setup and I, I feel like Stephen King has exhausted every possible thing that could happen to an author at this point <laughs> yeah but this one's fantastic Stephen King was so pleased with Kathy Bates performance and portrayal of Annie Wilkes that he actually I guess he was in the process of writing the stand after this or during Mm -hmm. this and one of his main characters in the stand was male and he changed the character in the stand to female so that kathy bates could (laughs) play the character eventually yeah, I've only seen the TV version of this movie. It was a shocker. Yep. You you mean that like you this totally own it? Censored version? You? No, I don't own it. This uh-huh. movie on TV? 
Yeah. Not there's not a TV movie version of this. There actually is an Indian. I know what you. You know what he means. He saw. There's a one in India. I didn't know what he meant. Be nice to Gibby. I didn't. I will not have people in the show. He's like, I love that part where she nurses him to health and let him leave. Yeah. That'd be great. It's and he dedicates a, his next book to her. <laughs> it's just a 22 <laughs> minute love. movie. It, wasn't it called Misery, <laughs> My Best Friend Forever? Yeah. <laughs> and I, I do married. feel like like James Caan gets overshadowed in this a little bit. And that's actually a reason that there's a long list of, of actors who, who refuse to be in this movie. Warren Beatty was one of them. Uh, who who did They didn't want to be overshadowed. Really? She gets the great uh, role. That's such a Warren yeah. Beatty thing. It's yeah. crazy. All righty. Uh, Lance, number one. I know of no cooler character in the movies than Rick Blaine, the hardened, cynical, heartbroken protagonist in one of the greatest of all films, the 1942 classic Casablanca. I won't recount the story here since this is more about the character than the movie, which I have no doubt we will do a segment on in an episode down the road. Rick is the perfect character for the movies. He seems to be in complete control of everything happening around him, and he's always the coolest, most mysterious guy in the room. He has the perfect line for everything, like when a previous one-night stand says to him, Who were you last night? That's so long ago, I don't remember. Will I see you tonight? I never make plans that far ahead. His friend Captain Renault says, What in heaven's name brought you to Casablanca? My health. I came to Casablanca for the waters. The waters? What waters? We're in the desert. I was misinformed. But he's not without his flaws. Rick is a cynic, but he wasn't always that way. He used to believe in something before a woman broke his heart and he lost his way. He fought for things that mattered to him, was passionate, but when we meet him, he cares for nothing but surviving. I talked in my last segment about how we were attracted to characters we have a lot of things in common with, and I'm amazed at how much I have in common with this character as I, I look about, at him now. I was about to say, it sounded like you were <laughs> describing yourself there. <laughs> a little bit. Not the cool has it together part, but the trajectory he's gone on is very similar to my own. And so he's a character I've always loved, but over the past several years, I've actually started to identify with. Again, getting personal here, but there was a time in my life where I was very passionate about certain things and had ambitions and convictions, and I sort of lost that along the way. And a lot of it had to do with something I talked about in our romantic episode, falling in love with a woman and getting so burned by it that I just shut down and became a cynic. I dated a lot of women after her, the same way Rick tried to do, but what happened between us broke something in me that made it impossible to continue those relationships. So after a while, I've sort of shut myself off from dating too. Again, just like Rick, he shuts himself off from it and can't even stand hearing the song that became their song. You must remember this A kiss is just a kiss A sigh is just a sigh The fundamental things apply As time goes by And when two lovers woo They still say I love you on that you can rely No matter what the future brings As time goes by Sam, I thought I told you never to play. I'm making all of this sound like a total downer, but there's another side to this movie that's very hopeful, because when you look at Rick's story in Casablanca, that's not where it ends. Rick is never completely lost, and one character, the freedom fighter Victor Lazla, who is the antithesis of what Rick is and greatly resembles who Rick used to be, calls him out on it. Rick, don't you sometimes wonder if it's worth all this? I mean, what you're fighting for? Laszlo, you might as well question why we breathe. If we stop breathing, we'll die. If we stop fighting for our enemies, the world will die. Rick, well, what of it? It'll be out of its misery. 
Laszlo, you know how you sound, Mr. Blaine? Like a man who's trying to convince himself of something he doesn't believe in his heart. Casablanca is about a man finally confronting that pain and rediscovering himself. And that's not me yet. It may never be. I don't know. But inside every cynic, I truly, truly believe there's a desire to stop being a cynic, a kind of yearning to be an optimist again and see the world through a brighter lens. So it's not just that Rick is someone I identify with. He's someone who actually gives me hope. See, that, that last part didn't sound like you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I love this movie. It, it's, a, it's a fascinating movie. I, I think it's a movie that should be watched many times. I've probably seen it twice and I, I need to watch it more because I, I feel like it's there's a lot going on in it and a, and a lot to digest. Uh, thank you. Digest. <laughs> that's the word I want um, I would argue it's the greatest script ever written. Wow. That's, that's my opinion. I, I think the story is so tight. The lines are amazing. Every moment of that film has a place and a reason and a purpose mm-hmm. in it, which is something I can't say about many films. No, I mean, I, I love this movie. I've only seen it once, so I feel like I really need to revisit it as well. But it's it's really hard to argue that Rick Blaine isn't one of our greatest characters. And it's something, when I came away from the movie, that's what I remembered from it. Mm-hmm. I remembered this guy that was so uh, just clear-cut and so like like, you know, this is who he is and then choosing to do something, you know, self-sacrificial in the end and just a fantastic character through and through. And AFI agrees. Their top 100 heroes and villains, Rick Blaine's at number four. Yes. Wow. On the heroes side. Who's number one? Gotta know. Oh, number one Vader? is Atticus Finch. That's oh. right. Like he ever did anything. It's interesting <laughs> we talk about this this week because last week we talked about Top Secret, which I think has a, a lot of similarities to this in terms of what it spoofed. It does. Yeah, there are several scenes in it that were kind of a lampoon of Casablanca. In Top Secret. So back in the early to mid 2000s, this is a great factoid here. Madonna wanted to remake Casablanca. Good grief. It gets worse. How? With Ashton Kutcher oh, in the role of Rick no. Blaine. <laughs> that can't be true. He's a charming oh, fellow. It can be it's true. Casablanca is a is a film that captured this lightning in a bottle. That it's that's not the first time people have tried to remake it. They have done there have been remakes of it. There was a TV show of it in the seventies. Really, and it, it just terrible idea. I, I I can't explain it. I don't think if you got the most talented director in the world, whoever you happen to think that is, to try and recapture what they captured in 1942, they could do it. It was just something that it cannot be replicated. Yeah. My number one character, Hermione Granger. Originally, Hermione Puckle. <laughs> that was her name? Going to be her name? Yep. Well, when JK Puckle. first named her. Puckle up. Just kidding, Rowling. Yeah. I'm not just kidding, no. <laughs> All right. More than anyone else in the Harry Potter universe, Hermione has to prove herself. She's a mudblood, meaning born to two muggle or non-magic folk parents, but she's never ashamed of who she is and not afraid to punch someone in the nose to stand up for herself. Unlike Harry, Hermione chooses to fight the Dark Lord. She's not a chosen one. She's just incredibly smart, incredibly brave, and incredibly determined. Without a doubt, Voldemort would have not been defeated without Hermione's help. Is this getting nerdy? Is this sounding nerdy to you guys? No. Uh, no. It's you talking about Harry Potter, which I've heard yeah. a million I mean, hours of. It's so a certain degree. Of it's nerdy, but I'm, to it familiar, nerdy <laughs> but I'm used to it. Well, yeah, you know, keep going. It's you, Hudson. So the movie, I tried to pick one movie for each of my characters. I, I think you guys were just picking characters out of the blue whatever yeah since the title was characters the movie I feel best represents the character of of Hermione is Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows part one where she along with her best friends Harry and Ron skip their final year of school to set out on the seemingly impossible quest of identifying and destroying five remaining horcruxes I identified a lot with this 
movie because that's why I quit college. <laughs> to find horcruxes? Mm-hmm. Horcruxes being uh, items which embody parts of one's soul. Horcrux. Yeah. Which, if they succeed, makes it possible for them to defeat the Dark Lord Voldemort. Did you just want to say horcry? Yeah, I just wanted to say the plural <laughs> that I just good. made up. Okay, the reason I chose this film is because of two decisions Hermione makes in the film. At the very beginning of the film, Hermione, as an only child, wipes her parents' minds of any memory that she ever existed in order to keep them safe. It's an amazing scene of self-sacrifice, which is a consistent thread in Hermione's life. See, I never understood why she did that. Like, she didn't have to do that. I thought it was very selfish. To wipe their minds? Yeah. Fight, fight, fight. I think if they knew that she existed, they would would always be in danger. I don't know why that would have really... Because Hermione still knows her parents, so why would that stop Voldemort? Is this the latest argument Voldemort would still know that that's her parents, so they could still go hurt her parents. Yeah, but they can't tell them where she is or anything. Uh, Are we to believe that Voldemort wouldn't find the fifth Horcrux inside the wand of the Phoenix tail? I mean, come up, please, be honest. The other decision she makes is that when the love of her young life, Ron, decides he's had enough of this seemingly pointless journey and takes off, Hermione sticks by the mission and by her best friend, Harry. And you? Are you coming or you stay? Fine. I get it. I've heard that be, that being a grown-up means doing the right thing, even when it hurts, and Hermione makes these difficult decisions over and over and over again. I am a big Harry Hermione shipper, one that oh, really? believes that Harry and Hermione should have ended up together. But what about Ron's sister? Oh, yeah. She, I, Jenny's she just, can't uh, end up with Ron. <laughs> she doesn't have to end up with someone in the book. Most uh, most most married couples do not meet in grade school or books. <laughs> um, so I had crossed my fingers for the relationship to go deeper than just friendship, and there was a big part of me that even I, though I had read the book, I thought maybe they'll change it for the movie. Closest we got was one of my favorite scenes from the entire yeah. series, where the two best friends find themselves alone and hopeless. Nick Cave's "O Children" begins playing on the radio. <laughs> Uh, and Harry walks over to Hermione and starts dancing with her and the two friends find their sanity in a moment of sadness and it's a really sweet and powerful moment that scene is so good uh, that's my favorite scene out of all eight movies ever really I'm having trouble with this Harry Hermione shipper business are you I, I am I, I think that would have been too I obvious like it, it just yeah. it just would have been like this this is what we came to well I think what I liked is that Ron finally got something well you have to yeah. understand Ron is my least favorite character in the entire and yeah, Rawlings' favorite character. Really? I thought Hermione was her no, favorite character. No, no, everybody thinks that, but I saw an interview with her where she said, everybody thinks Hermione's my favorite, Ron's her she's favorite. Hermione, Hermione's she said, most like Hudson her. thinks well, Hermione's right. my favorite, but Hudson's wrong. That was her she, she was like, she's like, JK. She was like, <laughs> hello, Guff. Hello, Guff. <laughs> that's, that's how she sounds. It is, it really exactly. is. Uh, she modeled Hermione after herself. As a child, but, yeah. But uh, Ron is definitely not Miley's favorite. That's, yeah, no, that's Ron. I love Ron. Ron's great. Ron. I can't but, but that's, stand but that's, Ron. Ron. That is shocking really? to me because he's Why? like, because he is the, he's the one that's always getting passed over. He's the one that's getting overlooked. And like, I, yeah. I loved that. It made, there was something relatable about that to me. And, and to me, like I said, that's why it works so well. Like Harry's the guy that's always getting the accolades. He's always yeah. the hero. And so to see Ron 
Han be the one to get the girl. Like that was just so satisfying to me. I really liked that. Yeah. yeah. Although Harry, yeah. Harry got the girl too. Harry got a girl. Yeah, Harry a to girl. me. Jenny's Harry great. to me though. She is. Now he's gonna have to be around the Weasleys the rest of his life. That's great. They're so sweet. Funny. Yeah. Yeah. Hutch is like he's gonna be around those poor people his whole life. Totally missed the point of the books. I Hermione doesn't have anybody. I do think that part seven, part one is Hermione's best movie in the whole series. And it, yeah. to me, it's the first time that I really liked her as a character. And I think a lot of it had to do with Emma Watson finally growing into the role. Because there's a few in the first three or four movies where she's just not very good. Oh, wow. As an actress? Yeah, Sorry, as Emma. as an actress. <sighs> and um, she gets better as it goes along. And this is the one where you're right. It, do you think it, she's listening? It all puts together. Yeah. She's definitely listening. Yeah. I did find out something really interesting that, that makes me want to go, go back and watch the first one is that Hermione, and I don't remember this, but apparently in the books she has buck teeth. Right. And so in the first scene that they shot in the first Harry Potter movie, she was wearing false teeth. No way. Are you teeth. serious? That's and, funny. And they watched the dailies that, that night, and they were like, uh, we're not going to be able to sustain this. This is this is not okay. But apparently if you watch really, really closely, you can see until it. the last scene of the first movie. That's funny. Then, She's got buck teeth all through the movie? Really? No, just the no, last just the scene. Last oh, just they the last scene. They shot the last scene first? Yeah. They shot the That's last scene. That's a good way to confuse these novice actors you've hired dangerous with kids going yeah. through puberty also <laughs> yeah. yeah but yeah. I, I harry potter's got a beard in the first scene <laughs> I, I what think, do you mean i'm a wizard <laughs> this is wilford brimley for wizards <laughs> moving on gibby number one bring it home gib no as, as you can tell from that wonderful intro, my number one character, Han Solo. Gibby <laughs> finally made his joke work. Good job. Yep. Raiders of the Lost Ark, Temple of Doom, The Last Crusade, uh, something about aliens. What do all these have in common? There's That's something right. about aliens. <laughs> That's right. One of the greatest characters ever created for the big screen, Dr. Henry Indiana Jones. You know, Gib, I'll tell you, if you said the greatest character, I wouldn't argue with you. I, it's, it's a totally valid argument. Yeah. Uh, AFI wouldn't argue if you said second greatest character. Is he wow. number two? Number two. Wow. Who's number one? Atticus Finch. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh heroes and villains. I thought it was just characters. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Was, yeah. Heroes, heroes and villains. Heroes and villains. Didn't know. I want to get Conjured up by George Lucas in the early 70s, collaborated on by Lucas and Spielberg in the late 70s, and brought to life by Harrison Ford in 1981 in Raiders of the Lost Ark. He came up with it that early? In the mm -hmm. early 70s, really? 74. Indiana Jones is a character that will never be forgotten. He's a dashing a history professor. <laughs> well, I don't think so. I mean, I think he lasts forever. Mm -hmm. After we'll everything's destroyed... In the nuclear apocalypse. <laughs> yeah, in the nuclear apocalypse. Know. That's why, like in Hunger Games, if you didn't notice it, there's a picture of Indy Jones on uh, Katniss's wall. It must have been must in have a refrigerator. It. No, it won't be yeah. forgotten. Yeah, it'll be in a refrigerator and it will survive the nuclear holocaust. <laughs> did, did Lance just acknowledge the fourth movie? <laughs> I heard a rumor. About <laughs> He's a dashing history professor who moonlights as the world's best archaeologist, travels all over the world, search of finding artifacts, helping people, and killing Nazis. 
And Indiana Jones. I just love him. Not because he's awesome, because he's also human. He gets hurt. He pines for acceptance from his father. He likes hanging out with friends. He's funny, and he's even incredulous at some of these outrageous events around him. He likes to crack into a cold beer. Yeah. <laughs> just like the next guy. <laughs> After finding the cross of Coronado. <laughs> <laughs> the best characters are the ones who you want to be, but who are also flawed. Hudson, I remember you mentioned in a previous episode about finding the Captain America character boring because mm-hmm. he's so perfect. And it's the same problem I've heard you also mention. It's a good great point about Superman. Mm-hmm. The reason Superman is so uninteresting on a lot of levels because he's the just, Captain he's America of DC Comics. <laughs> he's, the cap- <laughs> he's, the cap- he's the Captain America of comics. <laughs> um, Indiana Jones has an awesome job. He gets to live the life you dream about living. He does incredibly important things. Women love him and yet he's kind of a screw up. He's not only everything you want to be, he's also relatable in some yeah. bizarre way and to find that balance in a character is what makes him so much fun and so clearly driven at the same time you know it belongs in a museum it belongs in a museum so do you well the the art the arc he goes through over the three movies is really interesting and not talked about very much sure. I mean, it, and <laughs> can you just admit that movie sucks <laughs> Why will you not admit that? Why do you keep fighting this battle? Well, I keep fighting it for its existence. How many times have you seen it? Uh, Twice. That's enough. (laughs) but but the the, you know in temple of doom which is you know chronologically the first one he's a very selfish young cocky guy who doesn't really he does everything for fortune and glory fortune and glory kid fortune and glory in the second one he's he's moved past that he cares more about the the purity of what he does and then in the third one we learn a lot more about his back I love seeing him as a kid that whole scene was brilliant yeah. with the River Phoenix well the the other arc he goes through is in Raiders all he cares about is the artifact protecting the artifact mm-hmm. and in uh, Last Crusade he learns to put you know people yeah, family before the right, artifacts right. so in every movie he takes this important step forward that, that again they're relatable steps they're things we all need to learn and but things that, but then in the fourth one, he learns that it's all meaningless because there are aliens. <laughs> there is and no guy. Ninja monkey. <laughs> yep. I'll have to double check this fact, but this might be my favorite movie of all time. What, what, Which what? one? I'm talking about all three of them. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking at Raiders of the Lost Star. Is it really? It's yeah. Your, really? Oh, man. I freaking love this movie. Oh, it's, it's incredible. It's so good. You could do worse. Just watch yeah, it over like, and like over and over one. again. I have a soft spot for action adventure, and I have a feeling it probably started with this movie. Apparently, you also have a soft spot for Hitman. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What if Indiana yeah. Jones was different? A it's a different oh, spot. Man. That would definitely it's be a different one. soft spot. There's multiple okay. soft spots. Slightly yeah. less soft spot. <laughs> Slightly less softer of a spot. <laughs> <laughs> but this like I enjoy movies where characters and you've got big set pieces and just every single set piece in this movie works so mm-hmm. well mm-hmm. and it's like you know the old timey like stuntmen and uh, I don't know I just love it. It, it it is everything movies should be yeah um, absolutely and and he is a character that is everything movie characters should be yeah he's just so fun and I mean I'm glad we touched on it that he's human and relatable <laughs> how many times have you tried to crack a whip and you're like hit your own face yeah, it's like, you know, you know yeah. I actually tried to crack a whip about a year ago and it is really hard i'm sure it is i got it probably on my like 87th try yeah and then every like third one i'd get it's it's difficult isn't that always the way how much of indiana jones do you think is actor to the character versus just what the character would be like if tom Selleck had been indiana jones would he be tom hanks could anybody have played this role as well as tom hanks (laughs) probably not he would have been 20 percent better than indiana jones (laughs) i will say in our last episode uh or two episodes ago you made the argument that only tom hanks could have played that role if i were going to make that argument i'd probably use this character this is the closest to it because it is really hard to imagine anybody doing this other than harrison ford 
Well, he's was not Tom Selleck supposed to be? Yeah, Tom Selleck. He was the original yeah. Indiana Jones. Oh, that would have been terrible. Yeah, it would have just been like it been sillier. Or yeah. something. It would have been forgotten. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know. It's still Spielberg. Who knows? Maybe Selleck would be, you know, our Harrison Ford now, and poor Harrison Ford would be our Tom Selleck now. Yeah, Harrison Ford well, would be on. He'd be our Han Solo. Show. Well, yeah, yeah that too. And then he'd be our Carpenter. <laughs> Get back to carpentry. Oh, glad some mama's done with your stairs. That was Wilford Brimley. <laughs> Wilford Brimley here for Harrison Ford. How how good would Harrison Ford have been as Magnum PI? It'd have been fine. Well, hey, what are you guys excited about? I am excited about I okay two things about me. I'm a big record collector, as you guys know, and I hate 90s rock music. But my favorite 90s rock album of all time is Gin Blossom's New Miserable Experience. I think it's one of the great... It's all hits. It's amazing. Uh, Was never pressed on vinyl. And so it's been a hole in my collection as one of my favorite records that I've never been able to get because it doesn't exist. Finally got pressed for the first time, and I'm extremely excited about it. I am excited about... uh, In my research for this podcast, I ran across another podcast that talked about Hermione Granger for an hour. So I was all about it. Uh, It is a podcast called Heroin Addicts. Which is oh. a great play on words. Oh, it is. Um, it is uh, these four. It's kind of, they're kind of like us. It's four, except four twenty-something British girls who talk so, about not at all like us. <laughs> like well, at all. There's four of them, yeah, and they're okay. all girls, and we're four, and there's guys. You know, whatever. We're, we're mostly well, good, guys. Good crossover podcast sometime. Yeah. <clears throat> Anyways, um, they talk about both real life and fictional um, heroines. And uh, they're really smart, entertaining, and super British. So they, um, it was a lot of fun to listen to. So do they shoot up first, and it's it's like it really could get compressed in about five minutes. Yeah. But they're just heroin's like, about heroin. Nope, Hermione. Nope. It's just uh, just a play on words. It's just him groaning okay. for an That's hour good. about Hermione. So now that we have given them a free plug, will they give us a free plug? No. Doubt that they're going to listen to our podcast. On DVD now is my number one film of 2016, Monster Calls. Monster yeah. Ain't Calls. <clears throat> I look forward to you owning that and never opening it. I'll watch this one. I actually was reading the book yesterday. And the part that made me choke up in the theater, like I choked up again. <laughs> in the bookstore. I am excited about, I got a crown on my tooth last week that keeps falling out. And oh. I'm excited to get the permanent one in so next that, week. It's that's driving when, me crazy. That's when you get your, your tooth all the way to the other side of the checkers board. <laughs> Cute. All right, guys. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Thanks, we'll see you next Thanks. time. Join us next week. When we talk about two movies that Lance thinks ruined the books they were based on. They did. Wait, a movie that started an entire genre. A rum zom com bomb That makes Shakespeare roll in his grave. And a movie that feels like Tim Burton remade The Evil Dead. Zombies! This is Sylvester Stallone. Let us know how your list differs at Fight About Film on Facebook and Twitter. Or email us at fightaboutfilm at gmail.com. Please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. Four Friends of Fight About Film is produced by the Brothers Ray in Atlanta, Georgia. This episode was recorded and edited by Jordan Noel. Nothing is over. Nothing. Hello, you've reached the WFFFAF All Request Radio Hotline. What do you want to hear? Hey, this is Jordan in Atlanta, and I'd like to request Casablanca by Bertie Higgins and dedicate it to my dear friend Lance. Back row of the driving show in the flickering light Popcorn and cokes beneath the stars It came champagne and caviar Making love on a long hot summer's night I thought you fell in love with me Watching cats 
As time goes by